Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We've got a great show today. Today I've got Dr. Lynn Hellerstein. She's a developmental ophthalmologist, a pioneer in vision therapy. She's offered four books, including the award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, and number one Amazon best-selling book, Expand Your Vision. For more than 40 years, Dr. Lynn has utilized vision therapy with children and adults with learning-related vision problems, vision perception deficits, or brain injuries, as well as enhancing visual performance for athletes. She has inspired thousands of people to improve their vision and enhance their life. An international speaker, Dr. Lynn has circled the globe as she delivered her electrifying presentations and workshops for parents, educators, therapists, athletes, and other physicians. She has published extensively on vision-related topics and is a faculty member at several schools. She serves as a consultant to schools and rehabilitation facilities. So in 19, 2000, and 2019, she expanded her personal purpose and became chair of the board for the Socket to Him campaign. And the purpose of this nonprofit organization is to provide socks for those experiencing homelessness. Socks are the number one clothing need, and they, are, they have made a huge amount of progress. Based in Colorado, you'll find Dr. Lynn hiking on the Mighton Trails, collaborating with fellow musicians on the flute, ooh, and rejoicing with her family. Thank you so much, Dr. Lynn, for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Thank you. Sounds like you've been on quite a journey, and that journey's been going on for a while. And what really, what got you going down that path? Well, I started in optometry, um, kind of by an accident. I was always interested in working with children and I was on the path of being a pediatrician. And at the very last minute, I decided uh, I wanted my own family. I didn't really want to take night calls. And, and so I decided to switch gears. My dad's an optometrist. My grandfather was an optometrist. So at the last minute, I applied to optometry school instead of medical school. So it's in the blood and it's in the genes. It was in the genes, even though the field of optometry has greatly changed from being in a jewelry store to now diagnosing and treating eye disease and, and diabetes and glaucoma and doing vision therapy, which we'll talk about, to um, optometrists are the number one providers of eye care in the United States. And most uh, medical systems, your Kaisers, your, even your military systems, optometry is usually your entry level to start getting your eyes examined. And from there, it could be simply just glasses, contact lenses, or we find can find over 300 eye diseases when we look in the back of your eye. Uh, not eye disease, medical diseases, actually. So there could be a medical referral or vision therapy referral. So this is, you know, general optometry is a look, really looking in the opening of the window of the soul. You know, it's interesting because I had my eyes checked this year and it's, it'd been a while. And when he, he, the doctor offered me, would you like to do this test, this test? And well, what do they show? And when he started telling me everything that, that they could show, I'm like, well, of course I want to do those tests. Right. You know? it, it's amazing. I might just mention there's a brand new documentary called Open Your Eyes. And you can see that on Apple and Google. And it talks about what we can see when you look in the eyes. It goes beyond just doing a little eye exam on your phone. And it, it uh, really takes a journey throughout the world, looking at people across the world and how centurions, people living over 100, still have healthy retinas because of their lifestyle, their eating, etc. So it's a great movie. Uh, that you and your listeners might want to really look at. Well, it sounds very encouraging to think that, you know, and, and we're, I think that's a message I try to send at the Brain Performance Center is that, you know, your diet, your sleep, that's the foundation for how your brain's going to work. And it sounds like it's the foundation for how your eyes are going to work too. 
you know, eyes are really just one of the very few places you can look in the body and see live tissue and blood vessels. So if you're a diabetic or hypertension is an issue for you, often we'll see that right in the eyes. So it's a great source of prevention to have your eyes checked. That's so that's that's amazing because I look at visual processing differently than you do, obviously. And what I see in my practice is that the number of clients that come in that they can't comprehend what they, you know, they can't understand what they read. And they don't understand that they're like, I don't know what's happened, but I just I'll read it. I'll Lee, I'll read it five times. And I'll still you know, not be a hundred percent sure on what, on what it said. And of course, for me, I, you know, I go to the occipital lobes. It's all, that's where all the visual processing is done. Where do you start when somebody comes into your office and says, Dr. Lynn, I can't, you know, I can't understand the thing I read. Well, it's a great question because we look at it just like any other type of biological system where you have input processing output. So what we just spoke about was really the input system. Are the eyes healthy? Uh, is light going in? Can you see clearly? And a lot of that starts in the eye, but vision really takes place in the brain, just like you're talking about. And it's not just in the occipital region, that's your primary visual uh, processing information. Uh, vision is the number one uh, sensory source of information. If you look at the brain and see where vision is processed, it's processed in every area of the brain for different things. Uh, certainly the occipital lobe, like you spoke about, is your primary uh, visual processor, but there is um, visual contacts in the parietal and the temporal and the frontal subcortical. So for example, if somebody was in a car accident and had whiplash and they didn't injure their eyes, but they may end up with visual problems, double vision, tracking, because of injury to the part of the brain that processes visual information. So vision has been studied probably more than almost any sensory system. And it's predominant. I'm not belittling the other systems because they're all important, but the visual system is estimated to be our dominant sense in learning and you know living in this world. Absolutely. And no, I couldn't agree more with what you say, because this, this brain is like a computer. It's all networked and connected. There's not just one spot on the brain that can do anything by itself. That's, that's the way. Sure. I mean, so it's so interrelated. And I feel like that that's what people are really wanting to understand more and more. How can I, whether it's your eyes or, or any sense that you have, how can I get the most of that? How can I gain clarity? So you got started in this field from out of default because right. you, you wanted to have your, your family. And once that you got started, did you just start off as a general practitioner? Did you have a technique? I know that your career maybe changed a little bit when you got really interested in visualization or did it start with visualization? Well, it started, um, I was interested in working with kids from day one and it started with my own personal visual history. I could see 2020 and most people think 2020 is perfect vision. And all 2020 means is that at 20 feet, you can see a certain size letter about an inch high. You could have constant double vision and pass the 2020 screening. Um, so I always saw 2020 as a kiddo, yet I hated reading. As soon as I would read a few sentences, my eyelids would get heavy, I'd get tired, it'd get blurry, and I'd fall asleep. And it didn't make any difference what time of day it was. Reading made me sleepy. And so for years, you know, I wanted to be a good reader. I knew how to read. I had books to read. Yet it was so challenging to read. Now, luckily, I had good skills that I could listen. I could go to class. I knew how to organize. So I did well in school. And if you're in the math and sciences, you can avoid a lot of the heavy reading courses. And, you know, out of eight years of college, guess what my number one worst, most dreaded <laughs> college course was? What was it? English Lit 101. I mean, you. why would anybody even think they could read all those books that are required? 
I just couldn't imagine it. You know, give me calculus, physics, biochemistry. That was fine. But to be able to sit and read history, never took a history class. Not proud of it, but I just couldn't read. And so that stayed with me all the way through optometry school is there's got to be something else going on beyond just seeing 2020. And so when I got out of college, out of optometry school, I started a vision therapy practice. And for your listeners, vision therapy is really, it's not about eyeballs. It's about teaching the brain how to properly use your visual skills. So we teach tracking and focusing, convergence, eye alignment, uh, depth perception, eye-hand coordination, visual processing, visual memory, and it goes up. There's at least 17, 18 kinds of visual skills that you really need to have good abilities to be able to properly do well in school, work, sports, and play. So I just came out knowing that I was going to do vision therapy. Very few people in the country did that. But knowing what it was like to want to read, to have skills to read and not be able to read, um, really made me very empathetic with some of the kids that started coming in with a question like you asked, Lee. You know, I read and I don't understand it or I can't keep my place. Can you help me? So, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned eye-hand coordination. And that is something that I, I'll hear parents talk about a lot too. It's, you know, they're so clumsy or they can throw the ball really well, but they can't necessarily catch the ball. Is that, you know, you had mentioned the encoding. Is that that incoming and outcoming information flow to the eyes? It sure is. Um, Think about what it takes to catch a ball. First of all, you have to have body control. So those kids that are floppy and and clumsy and poor muscle tone, already at a disadvantage because they're working just to try to get their bodies aligned and upright. So let's assume you have body control. How do you know when to put your hands out to catch a ball? Your eyes tell the brain where it is so that the hands and the body can respond to catch it. And the better skills you have to see it, to know where it is, to converge, the depth perception, all of these skills together, then the easier it is for the brain to say, hey, put your hand here, move here. You know, your great tennis players don't move to the ball as soon as the ball bounces on their side. They're already moving because they're watching the body posture of their opponent. They're watching the racket. They're already moving in the direction uh, direction that they anticipate the ball is going to be. And you'll hear it on football when somebody makes a great catch. Often the announcer says, whoa, what great hands, what great hands. And really what that announcer means is what great eyes telling the brain to get the hands in the right place at the right time. It's so interesting to me because that brain-body connection, communication on a cellular level, when, when you can bring that together, that's when everything really, really works. So you've worked with, I'm sure you've worked with some interesting, you know, people through your, through your career. Do you have one example to start with of how your work in visualization really changed a person's life? Yes. You know, when I started vision therapy, it was much more classical work on the tracking focus convergence, the physical kinds of things. And we got great results. But what really started happening was some of my patients would really improve their skills and actually start improving their performance, get better at reading and writing, but they still saw themselves as being dumb or not good enough or whatever they described themselves. And I remember vividly a little seven-year-old patient was sitting in my exam chair and she was bouncing around having fun. I, I said, hey, how you doing? She says, oh, great. I said, so tell me, how's school? Fine. You know, the typical, I said, how's reading? And it stopped her cold. Mm -hmm. And she just broke into tears and and started crying. I hate to read. I'm stupid. The kids make fun. You know, this whole scenario of how awful reading was. So I said, okay, okay, hold on for just a little second. Let's take a break right here. And she immediately stopped crying because we weren't talking about reading anymore. So I said, let's breathe a couple of times and we breathe. And then she's kind of, kind of okay. And I said, 
what do you like to do for fun? And she goes, I love to swim. I said, how about if we pretend like we're gonna take a little swimming time right now? Would that be okay? Let's imagine us jumping in a pool. And she said, cool. And so we pretended we used our hands like we jump into the water and we're paddling around and splashing. She's now laughing, everything's good. And I said, hey, I have a surprise for you. And she goes, what? And I said, put your hands out and catch it. And I pretend to throw her something. She pretends to catch it. And I said, dunk it in the water. And she goes, that's cool. What is it? I said, it's a magic book that's waterproof. And her first response was, before, if you mentioned books, she cried. Her first response now was, can I look inside it? I go, uh, okay. <laughs> so she looks inside it and pretends. I said, what if we pretend to read it? And so she's all excited and we're splashing and reading in the pool in our make-believe time. As we worked with her, that became her assignment before she ever had a read. She had to go inside of her mind and make believe like she was going to swim and read her book while in the swimming pool. And what it did was totally changed her mindset, totally changed her anxiety. Instead of being triggered the minute you say book or read, she got into a place of empowerment, a place she loved, a place she had fun. And now she can start reading. And that insight started making me look at my patients on the inside and out, not just physically what's going on from the physical visual system, but what's the internal visioning going on here? And do we have a real match or a mismatch? We know and it's interesting that you say that. Yeah. And athletes often will say, uh, you know, 50% of the game is mental. And the other 50% of the game is mental, you know, and great athletes spend a lot of time, energy, and money working on their inner visioning, which many of us call visualization, because if you're a great athlete, but you keep seeing yourself fail, see yourself strike out, see yourself fall off the beam and you practice what you practice persists, you practice more of that, you get more of that. So in your mind, you're practicing all your failures well, there's a real good chance when you go to perform your task, you're going to do exactly what you practice, fall off the beam, miss the ball. And so we spend a lot of time rehearsing mentally. Athletes, musicians spend lots of energy and time really mentally practicing their event. And I took that down to work with the little kids. Let's practice in our mind. What would it look like if you finished your homework? I'm happy. So well, they just saw the picture and made a declaration before they even started their homework. You know, I use visualization in my practice, but it's really taking people. We all have a happy place. You yeah. know, hers was in the water. Maybe yours is in the mountains, you know, or maybe it's it's cooking. It's in your kitchen. But I'll ask my clients, you know, close your eyes and stop and think. And it's not just about, you know, I'll ask them, what do you see? But it's what do you smell? What do you hear? What do you feel? You know, is it, is it warm? Is there wind blowing? And it's amazing how when you can get them to get in touch with, with their senses on that level and they come, they get very peaceful. And I, I've worked with athletes and they all say the same thing. When I am at my best is when I am calm and focused. So it's visualization has a many, many different uses for sure. And I know you've, you've got a lot of more interesting stories to share with us. We're going to take a break in just a second. And before we do, is there anything that you would like to ask our listeners to think about while we're on break? Rather than think about something, what I'd love them to do is get a little experience of visualizing. And, and it can be as simple, and we'll do this even with three, four-year-olds, all the way to super athletes and adults, is to take a few breaths in and out. And as they're taking breaths, just allow them to go to their, their special place, a place that they love, a place where they felt they are the essence of who they are. And... You know, I call it multi-sensory visualization. See it, feel it, hear it, touch it. 
all of your senses. Just be in that special place and enjoy the few minutes. Well, you know what? I'm going to do that while we're on break. So I hope some of my listeners will join me and we'll be back very soon. We'll be back after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating, and exercise burns more calories. According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same. But if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. There's nothing like a high-profile court case to grab our attention. My mother was a court reporter, and she would frequently share funny things that happened during a trial. An easygoing judge would often let off the Poppin' Jays or repeat offenders. My mother would sometimes whisper to the judge, You'll never learn if you keep letting him off. Once in a while, the judge would reconsider and order the Poppin' Jay to the calaboose or jail. The court reporter records everything, including funny and embarrassing statements made by witnesses. Here's a statement made by a defendant accused of theft. Did you get a good look at my face when I took your purse? What's a word for the natural tendency to put your foot in your mouth? Dontopodology. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. So we're back and I've got Dr. Lynn with me. And I have to tell you, I had one of the most enjoyable breaks from a show <laughs> that I've had in a while. And it's something all honesty, I, I do try to use on a personal level. I'll, I'll close my eyes and usually I'll start off with focusing on my breath. And once I get my breath, my, my breath rate slowed down, I'll notice my heart rate slows down. Once I get my heart and my breath work to kind of dance together, I know that I'm creating wellness. I'm creating heart rate variability. But I really think that if you use visualization and you can almost create the same thing for yourself. So what do you think about that, Dr. Lynn? Well, I totally agree with you. And the use of visualization is found. We talked about sports and great musicians rehearse in their head. I use it in healthcare when there's tough procedures we have to do and patients are very nervous. I'll just have them sit back from the instrument just for a moment and just the breath, just a couple breaths in and out. Now gently allow your forehead to go back into the instrument and breathe in and out. And by the time they've done that, we're done with the test. And so it's, it's empowering for healthcare. Um, I've had some significant health problems myself and just the worry of surgery. There's whole wonderful scripts on visualization for relaxation and seeing yourself improve it. Um, there's visualization for stress. So many fields from psychology to optometry to athletics to musicians to teaching. I love bringing this to the kids. And kids are, are innately creative. And I'm sorry to say, often they've been in school, then all they're taught about is thinking and facts. And we want to keep bringing in this creativity and the visualization, the relaxation at whatever level. 
they're at. One of the complaints I get from many, many parents is how much time it takes their kids to do homework. Oh, yeah. And that is like, you know, the the parents, you can just see the stress and the torture on the parents, much less the kids. And so I'll give you an example. And this actually was uh, an example of my own daughter. She was uh, graduating college and she was taking her national boards as a dietitian. She knew her stuff. There was no worry about her knowing the information, but the fear of the test is what we were all concerned is because we all know if you get too scared, you can't think, you can't see, you can't process. When you're in an anxiety state, you're not in the thinking state. And so the goal is how can you put yourself in a place of performance? So she asked if I work with her a little bit and I started just like we started, take a few breaths, go to a place where you're very relaxed and calm. Where would that be? And she said, in my yoga studio. I said, great, so tell me, what does it look like? So what does it look like? What does it feel? What do you hear? What do you notice? What position are you in? What posture are you in right now? And she named a posture and I said, what's gonna happen? Have you ever been in yoga where you get in a posture and you can hardly hold it, you're holding your breath and the teacher gently says, put on a half smile and breathe. And you go, oh yeah. And then when you let it go, you can assume that posture sometimes just a little deeper. So we went through the practice of a few postures. And when she was done, I said, this is all you need to do for your test. You're going to the yoga studio for your test. Every question is a posture. And so she actually showed up in her best yoga outfit. She took a few breaths before she started. Number one, worked on it would breathe if she didn't know the answer, would breathe, try it again, end a posture, go to number two. So she applied what she does on a daily basis, it's automatic and calming, to something that was very stressful for her and did really well and came out, came out a champ. And you know what the beauty of that is, Dr. Lynn? Anybody can do this. It's, you don't have to have you know, you don't have to have medication. You don't have to have anything really except your freedom of thought and open mind. And we can all take, there's plenty of places when I think about, when I think about my boys, you know, I can close my eyes and I can think about the Cape. We used to spend a lot of summers on the Cape living in Connecticut. And now I think about them as adults and I think about different things, but we all right here in this brain, In this mind, we have plenty, we have the capabilities for visualization to help ourselves. I mean, is there an age limitation for visualization strategies? I'm so glad you asked that because because I never knew if there was or not, I started with my own kids when they were two and three years old, just assuming that they could. And we started with balloon trips, like they'd be in bed, and they, they were wound up. And so we would blow up our balloon and we'd blow up our balloon nice and big. What color is your balloon? And then we'd all go into the basket. And I always want you to be safe. So they'd always buckle in because they've always heard us about seatbelts and they'd bring their snacks and they'd bring their little, their little um, stuffed animals and a snack. And we'd go up in the balloon to the clouds. We'd play in the clouds and relax. And by the time we were done, most of the time they were sleeping. Some of the time they, as they got older, they wanted to lead their own balloon trips and they would go around the world (laughs) and create all these wonderful things. And so um, I've used it from little kids to seniors, you know, people in nursing homes of just so tense and just, not talking about their tense issue, but let's, let's take a breath. The power of the breath, just, just stop and, and pay attention to your breath. I had a patient that had crossed eyes and a lot of visual problems. The only homework I gave her was, I want you to stop for 10 seconds, a couple of times a day, and just pay attention to your breath. And her comment to me was, I don't have time to do that. And as they say, you know, as the Buddha says, then do it twice as long. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot, you know. Well, it's, it's, you, you mentioned seniors. So for those listeners, maybe that are in their senior years 
and they have limited mobility and there's some frustrations around that and they don't feel like they have the clarity that they used to have because you know the brain's got that philosophy use it or lose it so for for those people that are maybe struggling can can you share a story or share some strategies that you've used with some people in that situation you know it's interesting the strategies are the same just adapted to them personally in their life but I will tell you, I do believe keeping active in your mind and as much as you can, your body is essential for health and wellness, no matter what age. So I'm involved. I, I will tell you, I have a big birthday coming up next week, another decade, seventh generation decade. And I'm still taking courses, wisdom for the elderly. And you ought to hear the 90 year olds still creating their life. But they, they still have things to do in this world. And many of them are nonprofits. Many of them are mentoring young people. And uh, I think belonging and, and serving is what drives all of us underneath. And especially as we get older and maybe we're retired and our work is no longer there, finding a purpose of somehow serving people in whatever way. It could be cooking for people. It could be, you know, mentoring and teaching people. but I believe strongly in uh, doing meditation, however that looks for you, and creating. I have a phone call with some friends every morning where we create our day. Close your eyes for a moment. What do you want to be for today? Not goals, but I, my being is loving and miracles to happen. That's what I just created at the moment. And it is amazing what shows up in the day when you have the power to create your day. If you don't know what you're looking for, you're never going to find it. I'd well, say that over and over and over with my clients. And, and I believe that. And I, I love that. I love create your day. You know, I start my day with, with thankfulness and, and gratitude. But I love, you know, just when you say create your day, I'm like, okay, I want to do that, mm -hmm. you know, and what do I want from the day? And we all have three or four minutes to stop and think about what do we want? What, what goodness do we want to give to others today? What goodness do we want to come our way? It's, there's a lot of different things that can come from that. So, you know, we've talked about different ages. Let's talk a little bit about people that have had traumatic brain injury. I have to tell you, the first time I was in ICU, uh, my twin boys were two and I completely lost my sense of smell. And the, when I came out of ICU, the neuro neurologist said that as a result of the head injury, you will not be able to smell. And I thought, well, you know, I've got to be able to see, I've got to be able to hear, I've got these little boys I've got to be able to keep up with. And I thought, eh, it's not that big a deal. And I have to tell you, it was a bigger deal than I thought, because there's more emotional memories tied to the sense of smell than to any other sense. You know, when you talk about Thanksgiving, I can't tell you what, what you wore. I can't tell you where you sat at the table, but I can tell you what that food smelled like when I walked in your house. Right. And so I did neurofeedback. I got involved with neurofeedback because one of those twins was hit by a car when he was in second grade and he was fine until he got to fifth grade. So, and he had his brain changed the way he did. He told me that mom, my brain doesn't work anymore. And I said, well, I got this. We'll help you. So I found someone that did neurofeedback and I was going all the time. And I thought, well, maybe I should try it. Maybe. So I asked him, I said, do you think I'll get my sense of smell back? And he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, let's do it. And I did get my sense of smell back. And that kind of is what transitioned me off into the, the neuro world that, that I live in now. And I've worked with a lot of people that have had brain injuries and it has just changed, you know, changed the way my nose worked. Um, but it's changed a lot more than that. What have you experienced for people that have had traumatic brain injuries? Well, first of all, what a miracle that is for you, Lee, and that's really great. Um, the way I got involved with working with patients with concussion and brain injuries, 
was really through my pediatric practice where these kids would come and say, you know, grandma just had a stroke and she reads as bad as I do now. Or my uncle was in a car accident and he seemed double. Um, and they said, can you help him? And I didn't really know much about the brain injury, but I knew about vision. And we started applying many of the strategies we did with our kids and found unbelievable success. And over my 45 years of practice, I've learned and worked a lot more with patients in concussion and brain injury. And the stats are staggering. It's estimated 70, 70 to 90% of patients that have some type of brain injury have a visual dysfunction. It may not be the only thing and it usually isn't. But again, because vision processing takes place in almost every part of the brain, no matter if you've injured you know, your frontal lobe, if you've injured uh, your temporal lobe, something in vision is usually impacted. So we have done some significant research that's been published in the uh, brain research journals. Uh, and now it's a very big part of our practice of seeing, especially now we're back to the kids with sports concussions. And so we're treating a lot of patients at all ages um, working with the occupational and physical therapists, the speech therapists. I'm always looking for biofeedback specialists. What I also know from experience, I'd see these patients and they talk about getting better visually, but then they talk about all their digestive and hormonal problems. I never had this before the accident. And like you said, there's not like a brain for nutrition and a brain for it's one brain. And when things get disrupted, many systems get disrupted. And so I've always had a very personal interest in uh, uh, functional medicine and nutrition. And so many of these kids on the autism spectrum with ADHD, with brain neurology issues, I truly believe had such significant uh, food and nutritional issues trying to find a good research referral source, especially for the, the children has been really a challenge, but I think it's very, very important. Uh, I, I definitely agree. And it's interesting people that, you know, that have had concussions. A lot of times, like with my son, it was three years after he, he had the concussion and he didn't even lose consciousness. And people will say to me, oh, I haven't had a concussion. I, I never lost consciousness. Only 10% of the people that do lose consciousness. So, you know, that doesn't, that's not a valid measurement of whether you've had, you've been concussed or not. What about, you know, special needs kids and adults is how does that tie into visualization? Well, first of all, special needs kids and adults, it's probably up to hundred percent of those kids have some type of visual dysfunction. Number one, You'll see most of them wearing glasses. Uh, they often have a crossed or lazy eye. So there's a significant amount of visual issues with patients and special needs. But I do believe visualization is still very possible. Even if they're concrete thinkers, they visualize at a concrete level. I'll tell you a story of a patient. Uh, it was a, a high school kiddo that had a severe cerebral palsy. He was in a wheelchair had no movement, had to be fed by a tube, was a brilliant creative writer. And he used this auditory system of tapping his cheek to type all of his words. And I said, how do you keep track of your thoughts? And how do you create, you know, what you're going to write? And he could hear me. And then what he told me was, when he was a child, one of his therapists taught him how to visualize and he could see like if he was gonna talk about a, a car and a person and a stoplight, he saw the car, the person, the stoplight would hold that in his image as he would then write the story. And great writers talk about writing from their pictures. So here's a very uh, impaired, physically impaired young adult who is a huge creative writer that uses visualization, but can't show you because of his physical limitations, except for the end result of his work is inspirational. So I believe at any age, at any disability, at any level, 
that there's a piece of visualization that still could be tapped into. Well, you know, and when I think about what I hear from, from clients is, you know, I've, I've got a big presentation this week at work and I'm really kind of nervous about it or, or, you know, the good old test anxiety, it always gets the students or even with social anxiety, you know, I haven't, I, we were in lockdown for a while and I've seen a lot of clients that have had a little bit, they didn't have social anxiety before the pandemic, but they come out of the pandemic and they do. And so when I think about it, I mean, visualization is something that can be used on in every one of those situations, don't you think? Oh, I totally agree. You know, I, I have a lot of experience working with um, kiddos that have been identified as being gifted. A lot of mm -hmm. psychologists will send them because they're often very high IQ, but have disparities either in their writing or their reading and have a vision problem and will work with them. And in working with those kiddos, I find that they're very high level visualizers and that's often their issue. They can see every little thing that could go wrong in this situation. So they're using visualization, which drives their anxiety of all the negative things that can happen. And our goal is to get them aware of, you know, I'll always say, who do you think's in charge of those pictures in your head? And the little kids will say, my mom. <laughs> and I'll go, no, try again. And when they realize that they are the generators of their own pictures, we talk about what, we, what would happen if you created empowering pictures of going what's going on? And that's how we start the conversation. Often they're great like at sports or they're great at something else. And so we take them to that, which they're great at. And ask them, so what if you visualized, you know, like you do for your basketball game and did it for your spelling test and see yourself, you know, every ball was a letter, you know, and create their own game as to how they want to visualize it, but to empower them there, you know, there's very few things that we really can control in our life. Yeah. And the only ones I know is uh, thoughts and pictures in our mind, you know, and so we, we do need to realize that we we can be empowered to really do something with our thoughts and our pictures. You know, we can. And, and I think that negative thoughts create negative feelings. It creates negative behavior. And that's good old cognitive behavioral therapy, which is my, my counseling theory. But when you can teach people to well, educate them on the, we all have self-defeating thoughts. Man, sure. I used to have the shoulds. Lee, you should do that. And then they had these two friends called shame and blame. When I didn't do it, well, it's your fault. Things aren't happening the way you want them. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. And, you know, after a while, I'm done with that. Those shoulds have got to go. And I replaced them with the coulds. So I would say, well, Lee, you could do that. Well, yeah, I could do that. What if I did? Well, this would happen. Okay, I like that. This would happen. Mm. This would happen. Okay, well, you know what? I'm going to do it. But just reframing that the thought process that that I took myself through to get things done made such a huge difference. And being able to, and we and we're also visual now. I mean, social media. You know, I have people when they're out in the lobby. They're scrolling through their phones. They're looking at pictures. They're looking at what they see. And so I think we're also visual. If we could learn how to take a picture of ourselves in our brain, and I'm not talking about the one that you have on your phone. I'm talking about visually. Take a picture of yourself when you close your eyes. And if you could learn to use that for recall, what do you think that would do? I mean, I think that could reduce a lot of those self-defeating thoughts. You know, Lee, that's really the essence of my book, See It, Say It, Do It. Oh, now. <laughs> good work. Thanks for explaining. It's really about visualize, declare, and take action. It doesn't have to be in that order, but creating what you want in your life, declaring that not I should, or maybe I can, but I am, 
I will. And the action plan. Right. And, and just a quick story about that. In the say it section, I did not have very many stories, but the see it and do it sections of my book, I had to cut down the stories in the say it. It's like, I don't have any stories. I wonder why that is. And the reason it is, is because I often personally skip over that section. Ah. But when I was asked to walk a marathon with my adult daughter, I'll do anything I can to be with my kids. So I said, oh yeah, I'll do that. And then hung up the phone. Why did I say I do that? You know, all this negative self-talk. And I, what I did was I created a picture of what it would look like finishing the marathon, went to the internet and had these pictures. Everybody's, you know, yay. And then created my action plan, get my shoes, start the workout, all this. But I never believed I could do a marathon. I can't do this. I can't do this. And so the disparity and the misalignment of see it, say it, do it kept me from getting my training. I couldn't train. I ran into millions of excuses until one day, literally, I'm walking, going, I'll never do it. I can't walk you know, 26.2 miles. And, and in comes this voice. You are a marathoner. And I'm literally stopped cold, like, who said that? You know? <laughs> And that was my voice. And I realized I am a marathoner. You know, every day of my work, I get up early. I get the kids ready for school. I go to work. I see patients. I do my reports. I get the kids. Life for me is a marathon. It doesn't have to be 26.2 miles. But I could say, I am a marathoner and mean it. And as soon as I did that, my whole training shifted. We walked the marathon and it became the signature story of my say it section in the book. There you go. I think there that's amazing. So you also have three other books. You have Organize It. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, Organize It is really the uh, workbook that goes along with See It, Say It, Do It. You know, a lot of parents will say, I give him his, his uh, to-do list. He never does it. And I'll say, well, whose list is it? You know, it's your list. It's not his list. So it's about seeing, you know, again, if you had homework or a chore, seeing the end result, I'm done with my homework. Well, that's the say it already. They see themselves playing or whatever they saw, and then they create their own action plan in pictures or words, depending on their age. When it's their list, then there's a chance they may do it because you can't do the list without the see it, say it. Otherwise, it's just a list that's not theirs and they're not interested in it. Yeah. Yep, that boy, that makes a lot of sense. And then you've got a book, 50 Tips to Improve Sports Performance. And, you know, you I know you've worked with a lot of professional athletes. Is this something that just a high school athlete or, or before that even um, yeah. benefit from? Oh, we use this with our kids all the time. You know, the soccer, seven-year-old soccer teams, high school teams. And then I've had many of the coaches say, you know, I see the pictures of the kids in there. Is it okay if I use it with my professional golfers? Sure. Yeah. Just need new pictures. That's all. So you can use it. Simple tips, how to use, how to fixate, how to track, how to use visualization that you could take right there on the field, have the whole team and do something together if you want it. That's awesome. And then it, what, what's expand your vision about? Does that have more to do with the brain? Well, it, everything has to do with the brain, but that's really now where I'm at. Stories of patients that went beyond their physical vision and created their life. You know, a brain injury patient who was told that he never walked, talked, breathed, and ended up, you know, becoming a doctor and still believing because he believed and he kept, I am a doctor. He could see that happen. Uh, artists who hate their glasses because they see too clearly, clearly. They need to see much more of the space of the world. And when I give them really clear glasses, that constricts their space. So it's, it's really talking about a, a physical visual issue that people have gone far beyond what you'd ever expect to discuss in a vision. That's amazing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I know you put a lot of good information out there. I know you're on Facebook and it's Dr. Lynn, L-Y-N-N. Hellerstein and LinkedIn are there. I'll have, we'll have to connect on LinkedIn and you've got Twitter going, Pinterest, 
Instagram, you've got a YouTube channel, and that YouTube channel is is just Lynn Hellerstein, right? Correct. Okay. So, I mean, I have learned so much. You have been so informative. If you had three tips that you wanted to leave our listeners with to, to help them get their more confidence, to get more clarity, and maybe have more courage, what would those three tips be? Well, the first thing I love to see people utilize a see it, say it, do a process, visualize, declare, take action. It's really the, the process to expand your vision. Okay, that's number one. Number two is be open to the miracles that might occur. Just be open to the miracles. That's what you could create. And you can't believe things that will fall in, uh, things that you didn't even think about. And the last the last part of living a life of clarity, courage, and confidence is having fun. Life's about fun. Kids, we know from brain research, kids learn best when they're having fun. And so whether it's therapy, whether it's medical, I've had people with significant medical problems. You know, they have, you know, bags and all this stuff. They name their bags. They become friends. I mean, you've got to be accepting and having fun. That is great advice just to increase overall quality of life. Right. You know, in, in itself, that is great advice for us all to follow. And my takeaway from the show is that I'm going to create my day in the morning. I'm not going to quit being grateful and thankful because that resonates with me. But then I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to create my day. And I invite some of you listeners out there to try it try it with me and see what, see what will come your way. You only find what you're looking for. Dr. Lynn, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Brain Performance Center.com.